return in our studies in the Word of God to Genesis chapter 2. I invite you to turn with me, therefore, to Genesis chapter 2. I want to read again some words that we have looked at already, and we will continue to meditate on some of their implications today. We want to begin with verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now before we look at these words again, let's pray for the help of God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that as we have just sung a psalm concerning the blessed home that you have ordained, as we consider how you have ordained marriage in this passage we have just read, we pray that you would help us to rejoice in the plan that you have. We pray that those of us who are married would be stirred up, especially us as husbands today, to care for our wives, that those who are not yet married would have guidance for the future. And those that once were married and no longer are married would pray for us and would minister to us, reminding us of those things that we have heard. We pray, Lord, that each one of us in one way or another would have blessing from you even now as we hear and study your word. We pray it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Genesis chapter 2, we have the original blueprint for marriage, what marriage is supposed to be. And in this account, the first marriage, the first thing that we encounter in verse 18 is God's observation. It is not good that man should be alone. And this observation was then immediately followed by God's resolve. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And the word translated helper, it conveys the idea of somebody that assists another one to reach full, complete fulfillment. And as is matching opposite, Eve would supply what was lacking in Adam. The account of Adam's need for this counterpart is then followed by an account of God's provision. A provision of a woman, verses 21 to 23. And Adam's response was an outburst of astonishment. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And this account then of the creation of the first woman is followed by Moses' inspired commentary in verse 24. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The picture of marriage that is given in these words is a beautiful picture. A picture of two people who are similar yet different. Different in the way in which they complement one another. Eve was created as the one that was to be comparable to Adam. She completed him. She was the answer of what he lacked when he was alone. And before sin entered into their relationship, this complementary relationship was such that together they became one flesh. In the beginning, this the complementary differences between Adam and Eve, they were part of what God said was very good. It wasn't something that was a mistake. They were too different. They had, therefore would have a hard time getting along. But they complemented one another. This was a good thing that God made. But with the entrance of sin into the world, the very differences that God has ordained have potential, for, as God has ordained as potential for blessing, these very differences become the occasion of friction and strife. Now, one of the most important lessons for married couples is to learn that God has made them different. God made you different from your husband. Men, God made your wife different from you. And this is important to recognize. And no doubt, those of you that are married, you have different interests, personalities, temperaments, moods, perspectives, tastes, and abilities. And it is these differences that add variety and color to marriage. One seasoned pastor relates this, I was well over ten years into our marriage before I became aware of the value of this principle, that is, being grateful for the differences between my wife and me. For over a decade, I resented it. I now admit to my own embarrassment. It was off, it, I was often irritated that she didn't view things exactly as I viewed them, that she frequently represented another side of an issue, another opinion than mine. She approached a situation differently than I, saw other shades of meaning. She had other feelings. I took that as a lack of submission, and I told her so. Time and again, we locked horns until finally God showed me from this passage of primary reference He's referring to this passage in Genesis, that my wife was different because he had made her different. She was all the more valuable to me because of these differences. She was not designed to be my echo, a little vanilla shadow, curled up in a corner awaiting my next order. She was designed by God to be my counterpart. In verse 24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And this oneness is not developed in marriage by having one person's identity. In this case, it's the men think, well, it's the woman that should be changed. It's not having that person's identity disappear by becoming involved, engulfed in the identity of another, forming one big blob. In this sermon, I will primarily be addressing husbands and would-be husbands. Verse 24 says, the two shall become one. And so right away you ask, well, which one are they going to become? And you assume that because the woman was created for the man, the wife is to be conformed and be just absorbed into and become like the man. But the unity that's depicted in the Bible is not the unity of blobness, as it were, 
a unity by the woman losing her personality, becoming the echo of her husband. This oneness develops when both husband and wife come to the altar of marriage and surrender themselves in service of one another. Each of them has different strengths and each of them has different needs. Marital unity, it's the opposite of two people using one another for their own selfish desires. Now the opposite of what we see here in Genesis 2 is expressed in a marriage contract that appeared some time ago in a secular magazine. Now this is, and I'll just quote part of this marriage contract. I will not give come on signals to others for intimate relations when I see that you feel threatened. We are separate people with our own standards, and they must never be fused into one. I cannot make you happy or unhappy, but I can make myself happy. I accept my ultimate aloneness and responsibility for myself. That's a modern idea of marriage. You take care of what's good for you, I'll take care of what's good for me, we'll just have this kind of contract that we understand this. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, please. The opposite of this self-serving model is set forth in the Apostle Paul's classic passage on the role of husbands and wives. And it's especially significant that Paul calls upon the husbands to take the servant role in meeting the needs of their wives. Please follow along as I read from Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And then quoting Genesis 2, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now in this passage of husbands loving their wives, Paul depicts what we call agape love. It's the Greek word for love of a particular kind. And agape love is not friendship love. It's not erotic love. It's love that is totally unselfish. It gives and it keeps on giving without expecting anything in return. It's the kind of love that prompted God the Father to give his only begotten son and to give him up and to be damned for us on the cross, to take our damnation. It's the kind of love that drove Jesus to the cross to lay down his life for you and for me. And this this is the pattern that Paul sets before the husband. That's the kind of love that he is to have for his wife. It manifests itself in actions, not just feelings and words. It expresses itself in purposeful giving. It says, in effect, I see a need in you. Let me have the privilege of meeting that need. Agape love is a powerful kind of love. It can begin with just one person in the marriage. 
And if just one person in the marriage begins to love the other one in this way, it can begin to change and transform that marriage, even when that other spouse is not responding at first. It's the most powerful force there is in restoring wounded and broken marriages. It's not preoccupied with what it gets in return. And even if it's rejected, it perseveres. And this is because it's focused not on what it gets back, but it's focused upon the needs of one's spouse. This is the kind of love that Jesus had for us. He focused himself on our needs. And this is the kind of love that husbands are to manifest toward their wives. As we have stressed in the outlines in the bulletin, agape love is directed by the knowledge of the needs of your spouse. Here I'd like you to turn with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. In that passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, he gives instructions to their wives. And then in verse 7, he says, Husbands, likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter is calling upon husbands to know their wives. Literally, the original means to dwell together according to knowledge. The success of your dwelling together with your wife will be in proportion to your knowledge of her, your understanding of her. And knowing your wife includes those things about her that other people don't know. Her deep fears, her cares, her burdens, her disappointments, as well as her dreams. Her wounds and scars, as well as her hopes and joys. You're to know your wife in these ways. And it's the nature of agape love that it seeks to meet the needs of the person that's loved. But how do you meet those needs if you don't know what they are? Therefore, you need to know your wife in order to meet those needs. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God saw our needs. He saw that we were headed to destruction, eternal destruction. He gave his only son, the only one that could meet that need. Agape love saw our need. We were headed to damnation. And he gave us his son to suffer in our behalf and to save us from our sins. Now, one of the greatest reasons why our needs are not met is ignorance. Men and women have a great difficulty appreciating the value of each other's needs in marriage. And especially men, they tend to meet needs that they value rather than the needs that their, their wife really wants. And this is why 1 Peter 3, 7 especially stresses that husbands need to dwell with their wives according to knowledge. They have a harder time understanding their wives, I think, sometimes than wives understand their husbands. Now, there are three sources to this knowledge. There's, first of all, biblical revelation. It tells us about the differences between men and women. Then there's natural revelation, observation, things that, that, that perhaps doctors and, and so on observe that are differences between men and women. There are different mental abilities and emotional uh, makeup and so on. And then there's personal acquaintance. You are not married to women in general. You are married to a particular woman. 
And therefore you must give yourself to a lifelong study of that particular woman in order that her needs that are special to her might be met by you. So part of this study of your wife is going to involve listening as well as observing. Now I'm convinced that there is no greater way to have an affair-proof marriage than the presence of the kind of agape love that meets the needs of your spouse. That's the way you keep an affair from happening. Affairs get started when the marital needs of a married man or a woman are not being met, and somebody outside of the marriage begins to meet those needs. Usually the illicit feelings, they don't begin with physical attraction. Rather, the attraction is emotional in nature. Somebody other than your spouse begins to meet one or more of your needs or, or, or your spouse's needs. For instance, a woman's craving for meaningful conversation is not being met by her husband. Her emotional support is not being met by her husband. And, and somebody outside the marriage begins to respond to her. And she finds something being met that's not being met in her own marriage. And this is what leads for, to an affair. And one of my burdens in this sermon is that you might have an affair-proof marriage. Now in this particular sermon, I want to help the husbands of this congregation and would-be husbands to know the needs of your wives and to determine that by God's grace you will begin to meet those needs. And we begin this morning with the needs of the wife. The stress in Ephesians 5, the classic passage on agape love, is on the duty of husbands to love their wives in this way. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. In verses 28 to 29 of Ephesians 5, Paul then explains, So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. How do you care for your own body? How do you care for yourself? You consider your physical needs. You're hungry. You go get some cereal out of the, out of the, off the shelf, and you meet that need. How, you're cold. You go get a sweater. You put it on. You seek out those things that are going to satisfy your intellectual needs, your social needs. And this is what you're to do for your wife. Now this morning, we need to be selective. I wish we had time to address some of the needs that are most often mentioned by our wives, uh, many of them. But I'm going to have to narrow down to those things that I think come up most often by wives as they mention their distress concerning their own marriages. And because you're not married to women in general, but to a woman in particular, I hope that the examples that I give you will stimulate you to study your particular wife and her particular needs. Think of her as a beautiful flower. All flowers are beautiful, but not all flowers are exactly the same. They take different amounts of light. They take different amounts of water. We have an orchid, for instance, in our little shelf of, of plants. That's about all we can handle as a couple. We have a little shelf. And, uh, and the instructions that came with that orchid is this, to have each week three ice cubes. That's the exact amount of water. You melt them down, you put them in there, they melt. And that's how much water that, that orchid is to have. If, if it gets more, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get root rot and, and so on. And your wife is like that. She's not like everybody else. She's got her own particularity that God has woven into her in the womb. And you're to discover that and to meet those needs. Now, in this connection, it's important 
that you discover her needs from her viewpoint. In a counseling session when Anna said that she felt unloved in certain areas, Mike was dumbfounded. What do you mean, he asked. Well, for years, you've been a great husband and a very helpful person. and You've done a lot of nice things for me, she said. But sometimes you do things I don't need. I'd appreciate it if you'd find out what's important to me. Now, while your wife is away, you decide to surprise her by having the house painted. But when you come home, to your chagrin, you discover that the thing that she really wanted was different furniture for the living room, not different coat of paint on the outside of the house. And you saw something you thought should be done, but it didn't respond to what she wanted. And it's her castle, it's her home, and, and especially this should be her concern, and you respond to her desires. Now, first of all, I want to stress the first need that you should be, should be meeting as a husband is that of spiritual leadership. This is the first thing we have in the outlines. I've listed six things, by the way. We're not going to get through all six. But again, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And here we begin with, I think, what is important to every Christian wife, the item of spiritual leadership. Now, this assumes that God has appointed the husband to be the spiritual head of the home. Ephesians 5, verses 22 and 23, Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He's the head. He is the leader in the home, Paul says. And he stresses that Christ gave himself for the church, verse 26. And he did this in order that he might sanctify and cleanse her. And then verse 27, we read that it is his goal that he might present the church to himself, a glorious church. Jesus gives spiritual leadership to his church. Now, by analogy, the husband is called to give himself to the purpose of establishing his wife in the fullness of her spiritual and feminine glory. Christ gave himself that he might present us a glorious church as husbands we are to give ourselves that we might present, as it were, the last day, a glorious uh, wife to, to the Lord, who's been partly fashioned by our care. And, and you see, on the other hand, when the husband uses his authority to beat her down and to destroy her dignity, he's done the exact opposite. R.C. Sproul, he writes, when a man comes to me and complains about his wife and says, she's changed since we got married. I immediately respond by asking, who do you suppose changed her? There's a very real sense, he goes on to say, in which the wife a man has is the wife that he produced. If he has a monster, maybe he needs to examine his own nature. What did you do in caring for her and leading her spiritually as, as her God-appointed leader in the home? Now, leadership in the home is not just demanding the last word when differences arise. It doesn't consist just in wearing the uniform, barking out orders, and expecting a salute. It's much more than wielding external power and bullying down, you see, a person's wife. Instead, it consists in leading with inward spiritual loving power. And this is the way Jesus leads us. Leadership in the home begins with communion with God. 
If you have inconsistent shallow devotions, you will not be equipped to lead your wife spiritually. It also assumes that you spend time with your wife. How did Jesus lead his disciples? Did he just write them a letter once or twice a year? No, he spent large amounts of time with them. In Mark 3 and verse 14 we read, Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. He spent large amounts of time with them. He chose them to be with him, and he with them. And throughout the Gospels, we read of the way in which he gave large amounts of his time, especially to the care of his disciples. Again and again, he withdraws from the multitudes. He does this in order that he might give a special attention to his disciples. Peter writes, husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding. No husband is able to lead his wife spiritually if they don't spend time together. Dwell with them, he says. Christ did more than just spend time with his disciples. While they were with him, he saw also their needs, and he met those needs. And even now, he does the same thing for the church. And what does this include? If we just think about what Jesus did for his disciples, this is what husbands are to do for their wives. First of all, he feeds us. He instructs us. Throughout the Gospels, he's continually teaching his disciples. One of his primary titles is that of teacher. Now, sometimes he taught the disciples in a formal way, but often informally. They're walking along the way, and he sees something, and he draws a lesson out of it. He teaches informally. And it's also noteworthy that women accompanied Jesus as he went around teaching. Jesus didn't have the perverted idea that women are too silly to be instructed. I remember a woman complaining that when couples get together from the church after church and they get together for lunch, and maybe it's the after time for the afternoon snack. The only time that the, the men will say anything to the women is, please pa- pass the popcorn. As if they didn't have any place in this theological discussion that they were having. And in the home, it's your duty to treat your wife as capable of learning. To take the lead in family worship and in family prayer. He feeds us, Jesus does. He also prays for us. John 17, he prays, keep them, sanctify them. If you're irritated with your wife, pray with her. You can't stay angry when you're on your knees together. Pray for her and with her. Jesus also provides a good example for us. He says, follow me to his disciples. Come after me. I have left you an example, he says. He didn't just tell his disciples that they ought to pray. He prayed in their presence. He showed them how to pray by way of example. He didn't just tell them that they need to make the scriptures their final authority. He did so himself. He cited the scripture. He used it to refute error and to guide belief and to guide conduct. He didn't just talk about compassion. He modeled compassion. He was an example to his disciples. This is what we're to be to our wives. He also nurtures us. When you see your wife failing, A gentle word of admonition and encouragement sometimes is in order. And here we need to take care that you don't do it in a domineering way. One woman, she wrote to her pastor, and I just read some excerpts of this letter. This series on marriage, oh God, how I need it. How we need it, Joe and I. If these folks around around us only knew, 
These things Paul and Peter are proposing, I've tried them again and again and again, but it's hard. Last Sunday, we were hardly home from church when Joe began to stoke up the management of the home role. All week he'd been away on business, and I had maintained the meals and the schedules and a certain semblance of comfort and balance. But now it's mighty Joe Christian, manager of the home, telling the kids they don't have to eat their meatloaf, they will take naps, that my son can't wear his new t-shirt, and causing a reproachful look at me when my spirit inevitably erodes with neither gentleness nor control. Of course, it's an effort for him, too, to insist that the children thank me for that not-so-great-a-pancake dinner and not call attention to the fact that he's helping with the dishes. And God only you know what it costs this man behind the closed doors to continue to offer a gift that is not wanted. This is the opposite, you see, this domineering type of lordship to the way in which Jesus nurtures us and guides us and teaches us and instructs us. Jesus also protects us. He defended his disciples from the Pharisees. He warned them against the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. Ephesians 5.29 instructs husbands to cherish their wives as their own bodies. And we take great care to protect our bodies from injury. Likewise, you are to protect your wife from that which would be spiritually harmful. Care needs to be exercised, for example, in the choice of entertainments. Care needs to be given with respect to books that are out there, sometimes that are books about child-rearing that go way beyond Scripture and laid out all kinds of rules. They're not in the Bible, and because it worked in one person's home, they think it's going to work for everybody. And sometimes there can be, there can be confusion, there can be strife as a result of that. It's important to protect your wife from knowing things sometimes that will be harmful to her. And what I have in mind is not whether you tell your wife of something that, that, uh, that she ought to know, but you hear of somebody saying something that wasn't too nice in the church. Why do you have to tell her that? Why do you have to make her think badly now next Sunday when she comes to church and she sees that person that you just gave a bad report about? She doesn't need that. You need to protect her from that. That's your burden. Keep it to yourself. Don't put it upon her. So Jesus protects us. And in various ways, as husbands, we are to do the same with our wives. Now, much more could be said about spiritual leadership. But before we go on, let me stress again that you must not try to pound your wife into conformity over lesser matters. Be careful about what you give your authoritative direction about by way of trying to help your wife. Robert Barnes, he writes this, For some reason, I'm neat to the point of being obnoxious to everybody around me. When Rosemary and I were dating, I thought it was cute that she didn't find it important to take care of details. I'll never forget the first time I looked into the desk of her apartment. Each drawer looked like a grenade had gone off in it. I thought it was funny and straightened it up for her. The fact that we were so different in several areas never bothered me at all when we were dating. Then we got married. One day after we returned from our honeymoon, we were folding the laundry together. She opened the underwear drawer of my dresser, and I heard her burst out laughing. I walked over to see what was so hilarious, but nothing seemed to be out of order. In fact, that was it. What's so funny, I asked. She stood there, pointing there, and she said, This is ridiculous. 
All your shorts are rolled up in these neat little packets, row after row. I can't believe it. Well, what's so funny about that, I asked. You want to see something funny? Take a look at the disaster where you put your underwear. Everything is jammed in so tightly that nothing else will fit. If a burglar burst into our apartment and opened your underwear drawer, all your lingerie would explode all out all over him. It would take weeks to find him. And then Roseberry said sarcastically, Well, how could you stand living then with such a slob? To which I arrogantly replied, You'll see the error of your ways. Well, that was funny that particular day. But our differences began to be a source of irritation. Everything she did seemed to be done the wrong way. When we talked about it, she would tell me that I spent an incredible amount of time worrying about things that really didn't matter. But they do matter, I thought. The way the forks go in the dishwater does matter if you want to make the most out of the space. It all culminated on a day during our first year of marriage when I made a very profound mistake. I was waiting on the couch for Rosemary to finish getting ready to go out and eat and decided I wanted a piece of gum. Her purse was right there, so I opened it in search of gum. I know that was my first mistake. When I opened her purse, I was in shock at the things I found. Receipts from things that had been purchased back in the 1800s, old gum wrappers, etc. So I decided to help her out. Yes, I decided to clean her purse. It just shows how ignorant and arrogant I was. Rosemary came out of the bedroom and saw me cleaning her purse and went into shock. To make matters worse, I was smiling. I thought I was being helpful. That night, we had a very interesting time at dinner. Now that I think about it, I'm surprised she even went with me to dinner. You really think that your way of doing things, in fact, your way of living in general is the right way, and my way is the wrong way, don't you? She began that opener, but never let me answer because then she, because she was so mad. No, it's more than that. You think you're God's gift to me, to help straighten and organize my life. I was doing fine before you started straightening me out. And as I recall, you used to think that, that, was nice, that I was nice, but I was just different. Now it seems to me that something has happened. Now you seem to be irritated when I don't put the forks in a perfect rose. For some reason, you've chosen to change your mind about the way I am. Now you seem to think that I need to be changed, and why is that? Well, perhaps there was a little bit of a lack of desire to change in her part, but you get the point here. Here's a man that's domineering his wife over lesser issues, and he's giving spiritual leadership, so-called, in a way that was, was majoring on minors as opposed to majoring on the majors of the areas of spiritual growth that are necessary. Well, in your outlines, the second area that we've listed as the area of financial support, and I had put in my sermon notes a whole section about this. It's a very important thing for husbands to provide for their wives financially. The husbands are to be the breadwinners in the home. But I'm going to, for the time being at least, hold this section here because I don't think that, as I know this congregation, that this is something that, that by and large is a problem. I think that most of your husbands are providing financially for your families. Uh, and it's important that you teach your sons to be such providers and so forth. But I want to come to what I think is perhaps a more necessary thing to our particular needs as a congregation. And the third item that's in your outlines is that of meaningful conversation. The one flesh relationship that's described in Genesis 2.24, it goes deeper than a physical union. Implied is oneness of mind and heart. 
Amos 3 and verse 3, the prophet asked, can two walk together unless they are agreed? And in its immediate context, Amos' question pertains to the relationship between God and his rebellious people. Can God and a rebellious people walk together unless they are agreed? But in the context of marriage, the unity that we seek, it can't be separated from the interchange of thoughts and perspectives. And this comes about by the way of communication and conversation. Jesus showed his love to his disciples by communicating with them. That is one of the primary ways that you are to meet the needs of your wives, is to communicate. And this is one of the greatest needs that women have from their husbands. They need times to talk together. Now what if Jesus' level of communication rose no higher than that of some husband, just an occasional grunt or two? What if it went no further than that? 85% of couples that come from marriage counseling, they say this, we can't communicate. This is our big problem. My husband doesn't want to talk to me. And far more often, this is the complaint of wives rather than husbands. And men don't seem to have as great a need, you see, for conversation as their wives. And on the other hand, women seem to enjoy conversation just for its own sake. They spend hours on on the phone with their friends. And men rarely call one another and just talk about things for hours. And furthermore, the difference between men and women in this area goes beyond just the quantity of their words and how long they talk together. It also extends to the quality of their conversation. When women gather together for luncheons, they delight to talk with each other about their personal concerns. They share their fears. They share their, their feelings. And on the other hand, men, they tend to talk about practical things. They talk about politics. They talk about fixing their cars. They talk about the the football playoffs, the best places to fish. Those are the kinds of things that they talk about. They exchange a few jokes. They exchange maybe an anecdote. But rarely do they talk about their inner thoughts and their inner feelings. And it's because the kinds of conversation that women crave tend to go deeper and express more from each person's heart, you see, This kind of conversation requires more time. And this is a virtual mystery for men. If you ask a typical man how his day at work went, you say, good? Well, what's good? Well, uh, you know, know, the boss never yelled at me, and it was okay. That's all they think they need to say. Just a couple sentences, brief as can be. That's the whole day. But if you ask the wife how her day went, Oh, it just pours out. Oh, Johnny was did this, and he was pulling Susie's hair, and, and I felt like I was going to fall apart. The phone rang, and the whole story comes out, and, her, and how it affected her, and how she still feels, and how she's still struggling with how to, how to respond to that whole situation. It is a virtual mystery to men. That this is what, the way a woman wants them to talk, and them to relate to them. It's hard to understand. One man relates this experience. We went out to dinner that night. And it was not a particular spectacular evening. When we got home, I turned on the television and we sat on the couch together. At the first commercial, I turned to her and I said, Obviously, something's wrong. Do you want to talk about it? At this point, we began to talk, but a problem arose. The commercial only lasted three minutes. It didn't seem unreasonable for me that we could continue this conversation when the next commercial comes on. Well, I turned my attention back to the television show without waiting for a response. 
At the next commercial, I turned and talked to her. To my surprise, Rosemary was gone. Now, there just wasn't any place a person could go to hide in this little apartment, so I was surprised that I didn't see her anywhere. I looked across the room, and I noticed that the bedroom door was closed. I walked to the door, and I opened it. The light was off. And when I turned on the light, I found my wife sitting in the middle of the bed, crying. Now, the most logical thing for me to do at that point was to ask a diagnostic question. Rosemary, what's the matter? Well, this may have seemed logical to me, but apparently she didn't think so. When I asked her what was wrong, she responded with an answer that any man that married over a month remembers hearing. She responded while weeping, nothing. I asked her the same question several times, only to receive the same response. That was very confusing. Why would somebody sit in the middle of a bed weeping as if something's wrong? And, and yet nothing's wrong. I'd never encountered anything like that before. None of the guys on the football team or the racquetball courts, they ever did that. What was I supposed to do to get, to get out? How was I supposed to get, this, get out of this encoded message? Or was I supposed to dial 911 for psychiatric assistance? Rosemary was trying to tell me that she wanted to talk. And she wanted to tell me what was wrong. But it couldn't be done in a three-minute commercial. And wasn't our time of talking more important than a television program anyway? My thought was that if that's what she wanted to say, then why did she say so? Well, whatever reason, it became very obvious that we often talk at different levels. Well, it's likely that some version of this story that I've just rehearsed here could be told in many homes here in this congregation. There have been these differences with respect to talking and communication. And the thing that makes these experiences so difficult to our dear wives is that it seemed so different when we were dating them. What made the difference? When we were dating, as men, we were attracted to that woman. We wanted to win her heart. And as we wanted to win her heart, we were eager to demonstrate that we were witty. We were interesting. We were pleasant. We were fun. We were caring. and we were, we were interested. And when we were courting, you see, both as men and women, we were highly motivated to get to know one another. And in courtship, you see a man, he becomes uncharacteristically curious about the female companion that he's sitting across the table from. It's a time of wonderful discovery. He's interested in her. He wants to know all about her. He genuinely wants to find out about her feelings, about her concerns. He knows she loves to be called. And they talk for hours on the phone while they're courting together. And women respond to this. A woman wants to be with somebody that cares about her. And when she perceives this kind of care, she feels very special, very close. As Willard, as Willard Harley puts it, in the female psyche, conversation blends with affection to help the woman feel united with the other person. She feels bonded to that person as long as the affection and conversations continue, and hear these words, on a daily basis. But dear men, this being the case, I want to just give you a few pointers here. One pointer is to block out time in your schedule to talk to your wife. 
Along similar lines, don't resent it when your wife interrupts what you're doing and what you're watching that you might talk. And sometimes turn off the television if that's what it takes. And plan time, better yet, plan time to talk about things. Spontaneous conversations are also important, both planned conversations and spontaneous. One author that I read recommends counselees to spend 15 hours a week in these kind of conversations. I don't know that, to be honest with you, I don't know that I can ever say that we ever in our marriage for on a steadily basis spent 15 hours together and just talking. But this is what he counseled. And he said many men look at him like he's losing his mind. And of course we can't be absolute individual needs, providential circumstances, they vary. But it would do us good as men to ask ourselves why it is we were so willing to spend so much time when we're courting our wife and we spend so little time talking to her now. Why? Any bachelor that fails to devote several hours a week, 10 hours, maybe 15 hours a week talking, he's going to likely lose her. And what happens on a typical date? You choose an activity. But the activity is incidental of what you're really trying to accomplish. What you really want to do is focus on each other. Find out about each other. Communicate with each other. You want to get to know each other. And why should these goals be dropped after the wedding? This is why it's important to plan dates still. This is why you need time together during the week, if possible without interruptions from the children or television. This is a vital part of good vacations. Sometimes, surprisingly, and maybe you'll think that this is kind of a strange thing, but sometimes some of the best things that happen on a vacation is the long drive to get there because we have nothing to do but talk. We have all these distractions once we get there, things we might see, things we might do. But when we're driving, we talk. And all too often, after a period of time, men begin, you see, to take their wives for granted in this area. And remember, your wife married you because of the pleasant times that you had talking with her. And you did so over long periods of time. And she assumed this would continue. Is it right for her to be continually shortchanged now? Beware of those things that become the enemy of these times together. In order to allow hours of work, they come with a slave to the house, and many other things intrude. Try to find things in which you can cultivate a mutual interest and talk about them and spend time communicating in that way. And then one other thing I want to say by way of pointer is learn to listen. Seek to give your undivided attention to your wife. You can't communicate on a deeper level when there are other things that distract you. Put down what you're doing. Shut your mouth and listen. And above all, don't get in arguments. It doesn't show you're trying to listen to her. When you argue, you're usually not listening. You're thinking about what you're going to say by way of rebuttal. Don't, don't deal with your wife in that way. And one of the best helps to listening is paraphrasing what she is saying. She needs to know that you're really getting at what she's trying to say. And when you try to put it in your own words and say it back to her, this sends her the signal that you're really trying to hear what she's saying. It gives her the opportunity to correct some misconception that you might have had about what she's saying. And the effort of trying to put it in your own words it also gives her the opportunity to clarify maybe what she was meaning to say. And don't try to rebut it. 
When you're in the listener's role, it's not the time to offer your opinion, not the time to offer your thoughts. That'll come later. And this is often one of the hardest parts of really communicating with our wives, is the, is the art of listening to our wives. I remember counseling one couple, and I just told this man, you just need to sit down for a half an hour with your wife and just listen. Just listen to her. That's what you need to do. And wait till your wife has fully expressed herself and you've shown her that you're really trying to understand, then you can have the floor. And then as you converse with your wife, another pointer, seek to open up your heart to your wife. It shows love to her when you try to enter into what is on her heart. But she also wants to find out what's on your heart. Tell her about your dreams, your aspirations, your fears. Tell her how you feel about this or how you feel about that. This is a hard thing for husbands to do. We just have a hard time getting it out for some reason. We just have a hard time even expressing our love in the way we used to express it. We need to do so. And we, need, we would just also beg our wives to be patient with us because it, it is difficult. And pray for us that the Lord will help us to communicate in these ways with you, our dear wives. Well, I want to just say a few words, and I'm not going to be able to finish this point. We'll come back to this next point in another sermon. But there needs to be, in a, in a wholesome marriage, surpassing devotion that is given to your wife. And first I wrote down supreme devotion, but supreme devotion belongs to the Lord. But above all other human relationships, our devotion is to be given to our wives. Your wife needs to know that apart from your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, she has first place in your heart. You are still a one-woman man. She needs to know that she comes before your business, before your parents, before your hobbies, before your sports, even before your children. She needs to know that apart from Jesus Christ, you delight in her more than in anything or any or more than anyone else apart from the Lord Jesus. In Genesis 2.24 we read that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That means leaving one primary sphere of affection, father and mother, and becoming joined to one's wife. She is to have now surpassing devotion in terms of comparing all other earthly devotions. She's to have first place above every other human relationship. In Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's stressing that the kingdom of God is to be our treasure, not money. But among human relationships, the principle applies. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. She needs to know that she is your treasure. She is the most important person to you, your chief earthly treasure and here I as I was thinking about this I never thought about this passage about David's great sin so much about what it says concerning Uriah we focus on that story about David and what he did and, and so forth but you remember how Nathan the prophet came to David and he gave a parable about uh, about a poor man and his, and his little lamb and the whole point was Bathsheba was to the, that man what that lamb was to that poor man. 
And she was exceedingly precious to her, to, to Uriah. This is what was so evil about what you did. The preciousness that she was to him. And this is what made what David did especially heinous. It's an illustration of what our wives are to be to us. And here, of course, the example of Jesus is especially significant among all other earthly relationships and concerns his bride as first. He never thinks of us as being of secondary interest. He has many other responsibilities. He's not some do-nothing king. He's supremely busy. If any husband ever had, had the excuse to say, well, I've got too much to do, Jesus could say that. But he intercedes constantly. He cares for us constantly. He speaks with us constantly. He gives attention to us constantly. Because apart from his Father, he has supreme affection for you and for me, his spiritual bride. And the typical male syndrome, though, is that of treating our wives with diminishing importance, you see. The more the wedding fades away. Prior to the wedding, she's everything. The, the man goes to courtship, to courtship with the zeal of an Olympic-bound athlete. He, he, he does, he'll he, he climb a mountain, so to speak, to win her heart. But after the wedding, he pursues her less and less. She finds herself devoting more and more time for him. She washes his clothes. She cooks his meals. She plans other things. She does a host of chores. And while she's doing more and more, he's doing less and less, giving her less and less attention. She's appearing to be of less and less importance to her. And often the results are tragic. R.C. Sproul relates that at one time in his ministry, he was involved in counseling 16 couples who were having marital problems with a third party involved. And he writes this, In every single counseling case I've been involved with that included an affair, I've asked the unfaithful partner the same question. What is it that attracted you to this person? In every single case, the answer has been the same in so many words. He made me to feel like a woman. Or she made me to feel like a man again. Well, there's more that we could say about this, but our time is up. But I trust that at least we've said enough to emphasize that this is something exceedingly important, a need that is very vital that we meet in our wives, that they know that they are first in our hearts. And there's no other person that is higher in our hearts and in our affection, apart from the Lord Jesus, than our wife. Well, Let's pray for help, that God will help us as husbands to do these things for our wives. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given us such precious wives, wives that are so patient with us. Our many sins, our selfishness, our preoccupations. Forgive us, Lord, for the many sins that we have committed against our wives. Enable us to be those kinds of husbands that we should be. And we pray, O oh Lord, that those that are not yet husbands, that you would prepare them to be the kind of husbands they should be. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd be pleased to help us to grow in likeness to you, Lord Jesus. In the way that you care for us, we pray that you would help us to care for our dear wives. We pray that those that are no longer married, perhaps once were married, that you would help them to encourage us and to strengthen us. As the scriptures speak of the older women teaching the younger women, Lord, help us all 
May the, younger, may the older men also be teaching the younger men how to do these things. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd be pleased to bless us in these ways. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.